every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Welcome to High Turnout Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I'm the county clerk in Boone County, Missouri, and with me is my co-host. Eric Fade, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And today we are really excited to talk to Jeff Hale from CISA about cybersecurity and everything related to how we make sure that local election authorities work with the federal government and keeping things safe and secure for our voters. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. So we'll start with our first question, because I'm sure in working in the cybersecurity space, you really didn't dream of working in the elections world, but how did you end up working on elections related things? Oh man, I guess I have Russia to thank. In 2016, when Russia uh, used cyber attacks to target both states and some counties, the Department of Homeland Security was uh, caught off guard on how we could better support election officials. So I was assigned the task of uh, learning how we can kind of reduce the disparity of leaving a local election administrator to defend their their systems from nation state adversaries uh, and see what we could do. It certainly wasn't always a smooth transition into into elections. We had a lot to learn and um, really I have to thank uh, a lot of people along the way. Like we leaned heavily on Matt Masterson and we're able to bring him aboard and we really learned how to prove our value to the election community. And we hope to continue to do that uh, throughout the years. But uh, yeah, it was Russia was my entry point. What had you been working on before you ended up having to do that in 2016? So my background is in systems engineering and systems analysis. Uh, I got into cybersecurity. I kind of fell in love with the topic. We work on policy, how to better secure federal networks, how to support state and locals, Uh, how to support critical infrastructure and their cybersecurity needs. The CISA mission, there used to be a computer emergency readiness center. And the the kind of role of CISA and its predecessors was how do we have a more secure and resilient digital network, digital space across all of these high value communities across the U.S. This is something that I really got into and then married that with kind of the perfect audience of election officials who just want to get the job done, want to secure their systems, want to be able to be to show that that their process is trustworthy and need resources wherever they're available. So it really helped to marry these two nonpartisan interests in finding a, a home. I remember in 2013, 2014, there was a lot of suspicion about why the federal government wanted to get involved in election cybersecurity and things like that. And that was before 2016. Have you noticed kind of a shift in cooperation or in how things have come together? Oh, absolutely. I think rightfully so. The the election community was very hesitant to embrace the federal government and, and our ability to provide assistance, particularly as the Department of Homeland Security When we rolled out elections as critical infrastructure, we didn't do a great job explaining what it was. 
We heard accusations of it being a federal takeover, of implementing new standards and requirements. And I hope that the last few years have really demonstrated that it was none of that, that what it really helps us to do is to argue that elections are important and the systems that administer elections are very important. So uh, it should be of a national security interest to make sure that you all have the resources, the information you need to secure those systems. And that's why we have people across the country. That's why we've set up things like funding the uh, Election Infrastructure Information Sharing and Analysis Center, putting out cybersecurity services and physical security services so that you all have all the, the information you need to better manage risks to your systems. So Jeff, that's one question I've heard a number of election administrators ask. You just mentioned ISAC. You know, so there's CISA, there are these ISACs, plural, out there. CISA is obviously a agency of the federal government. What are the ISACs? Do you all oversee those? Are they funded by the federal government? How does that all work? So CISA funds very few ISACs, but when it comes to support to state and local entities, we do fund the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center and the Election Infrastructure Information Sharing and Analysis Center. And the thought there is that you all are kindred government spirits. Our resources are your resources and vice versa. So uh, why would we be taxing you to, to pay for this in the same way that, uh, that we can fund on your behalf? And a lot of the benefit is the information awareness, the situational awareness that's provided to CISA at the federal agency of what incidents are impacting the critical infrastructure at a state and local level. There are critical infrastructure ISACs and ISAOs, so information sharing and analysis centers and information sharing and analysis organizations across all different types of critical infrastructure and divided in almost any way you can imagine. We don't pay for all of them. We do try to work with as many as possible on having as robust an information sharing environment as possible. It's really uh, that tool to help identify and detect malicious activity across critical infrastructure and to see where we can learn from one sector and apply those lessons to someone else who might be targeted by the same activity later. Prior to 2017, I had never heard of an ISAC, really didn't know what CISA was either. You know, and like you said, Russia changed that not only for you, but for most uh, local election administrators. And now, not only am I and a lot of other election officials um, a member of the EIISAC or MSISAC, at least in my case, we coordinate a lot more with other local uh, emergency response officials. So from our fusion center in the St. Louis area, you know, we have those folks in our office on election day and we have a, an ongoing relationship, even on a local level and information sharing relationship. So that has all come about since 2016. And I think in our case, it has, it has made us better. It has made emergency response, even for relatively minor things, like maybe there's a traffic accident in front of a polling place on election day that's you know jamming up traffic. Now we can respond to that in a much more cohesive and expedited manner than we could before. So there are, I think, these knock-on effects from all the cybersecurity stuff and the coordination that have helped with even even stuff like that. And I don't know if you've heard about that from other parts of the country or not, but that, that's been my experience for sure. Oh, that's fantastic to hear. I, I absolutely love that. Uh, I, we have heard other local election officials, local election authorities uh, indicate that 
before. They may not have known their, their county CISO and CIO. Uh, they may not have had the same ties with law enforcement or hadn't gone through the same incident response planning. And really what I'm thrilled to hear is, is the improved readiness that, that the entire election sector has because it's tough to project what the next threats are going to be. And sometimes it is just a, uh, a car hitting a polling place unintentionally. That always seems to happen. Or sometimes it is uh, having to shift because of inclement weather or, or other types of all hazards. And what we've seen is that there's a faster response, a better community around supporting election officials. And we're thrilled to have that. I think one of the things that is interesting to me about just the way that CISA operates is that you do provide those resources, but there's also a component of trying to make all of this easier to understand. There's not an expectation that we all have to be complete experts in everything. And especially in places that focus on technology, you know, usually, at least in my experience, they like to have like-minded people within organizations to talk to about that, but you all know that you're not going to be talking to, to technologists when you're talking to local election authorities. And I feel like that has expanded to doing more public education too. Was that like an intentional decision or is that just something that evolved over time that you knew that that had to happen? That's a great question. Uh, I think in many ways we treat election officials like executives of, of large companies that run critical infrastructure, they may not need to know the particulars of the asset management of their uh, IT systems and networks, but they need to know that that's important. So we, we try to communicate the types of things that you should be able to speak to and to whom you should be speaking in order to ensure that you have a secure system. So that does lead to a bifurcation of responsibilities sometimes. So uh, we'd like to talk to election officials about making sure that they're less susceptible to phishing. We'd also like to see patching improved, a patching of the vulnerabilities on their, their IT systems. But we recognize that election officials probably don't oversee the patching of their systems in all instances. So while they understand that they own the risk and, in, and if voter registration data gets taken off those systems, they're still the ones that are, that are responsible for speaking to the public about it or, or answering questions about it. They may not be the ones patching those vulnerabilities that allow those to, that to occur. So how do we empower election officials to have those conversations, to know the vulnerabilities that should be patched and to communicate with their IT staff or their county IT staff at a state level, who's ever providing their backbone. This was a learning experience for us, the way each and every county seems to have a different model for how uh, how the elections are administered and how their IT networks are, are run. So this has been a learning experience of the last four or five years. How challenging was it for CISA to, to try to put all these pieces together? Because I'm guessing, I could be wrong, but compared to the other sectors that you all deal with, elections are extremely decentralized. Everybody's doing something a little bit different. How does that compare to the other things you do? So uh, there are some similarities to some other sectors and how do you support the education sector. None of them have as diverse a governance structure. And certainly it took us years to learn and uh, I'm not to blow smoke, but really we, we learned so much from Matt Masterson when we were able to hire him in 2018. And, and he was able to lend his reputation and credibility and his experience working as a former EAC commissioner and at a state level on elections. So learning from him and then helping to shape 
our support at the across the country with all of our regional staff are the ability to prioritize support to election officials over some of the other sectors in advance of 2020 so that we could again ensure that everybody was in the best position to make those risk management decisions for their systems. The way Matt Masterson kind of tells it, you know, well, he was on the EAC and at some point there was a meeting or meetings and because, I mean, let's face it, nobody knows how elections are run. Uh, you know, we only work a couple of days a year anyway, right? So, you know, what's, what's going on? And then people started asking questions, led to more questions and more questions. So was there a time over at CISA when, you know, you all sat down and had like elections 101 and, <laughs> you know, kind of learned a lot of this stuff? Oh, yeah. So uh, it was a hard lesson. To characterize 2016, we were reactive to incidents. Russian activity happened, and then we started to think, goodness, there, there's, there's some targeting here. How can we better support this community? But all of that, it was in response to incidents. After the fact, after an incident, it's difficult to, to improve readiness and resilience after incidents are already, and targeting has already occurred. So yeah, uh, it, uh, though those incidents occurred starting in the late spring, early summer uh, of 2016, Come August, we did have a meeting with EAC and others where Matt just kind of lent his expertise. There were, there were several, several others. We were able to better understand where there are points of aggregate risk, uh, where, where some of the systems might be proprietary or homebrew, where those may be exposed to the internet and haven't been as funded. Uh, oftentimes, I think we made that, that early mistake of looking at voting systems as the most critical point of risk. Uh, and then we had to learn, look, it's all dependent on these, these other systems, kind of through the process of operations, focus where things touch the internet, focus on voter registration, voter registration databases, also the impact of election night reporting and how that can be manipulated for kind of the purpose of, although absolutely unofficial, it has a big impact on the way people perceive the security of the election. So how do we put security controls around that? to help engender confidence. I mean, I think anyone that paid attention to what was coming out of CISA in 2020, disinformation was one of those really big components of it too. I wonder if you can go into more about why that was determined to be the thing to really focus on. So we saw the playbook from Russia in 2020 there. Uh, well, there was targeting of election infrastructure and election systems. We didn't feel that it had a ton of actual operational impact. Information was taken. And when you talk to election officials, uh, oftentimes they tell you most of that information is public anyway, or we provide it to campaigns or the confidentiality of voter registration isn't the primary concern. We obviously want to protect our systems, but that information is provided to either in some states, anyone who pays for it, in others, anyone who qualifies as, as a campaign or academic institution. So what we did see was that those incidents, while not having the operational impact, they shook the, the, the belief of the security in, in some of these systems. And that was used to feed disinformation and, and kind of uh, undermine confidence in democratic institutions back in 2016. That playbook was out there. We saw a little bit of the attempts in 2018. There was some propaganda videos and, and things like that, but but overall very little activity. In 2020, we saw disinformation activity from Russia, disinformation activity from Iran, and ultimately it was that Iranian activity 
that when we started to recognize that they were spoofing these emails and creating the, an impression that, that they were extremist organization, threatening individuals that organization would know how you voted. And if you didn't turn to this particular affiliation, they're going to come after you. Here's your address. Here's your name. We've pulled this from the voter registration database. Uh, everything is insecure. We thought we have a chance to get ahead of this and start to preemptively debunk or pre-bunk the American public from this type of disinformation so that they can have a higher level of confidence. So we established this as a rumor control site and just went through ultimately about 23 some odd uh, narratives that started to emerge uh, around the elections that could be demonstrated to be false. One of the real highlights of this was uh, um, when additional Iranian activity started targeted, targeting the uh, federal write-in absentee ballot process. They created a scary video that has Metallica playing and then shows this faked hacking. And they appear to hack the federal write-in absentee ballot uh, and said, we're, we're going to send thousands of these in. Well, I know how long it took me to learn the election process, and I'm still not a master at it. But federal write-in absentee ballot is obscure to me. So I imagine that the general public has no idea the security safeguards around this. So that can be a really intimidating, really effective strategy, if not countered by some type of alternate messaging, some trusted source of information. So that's where we started to put these on rumor control so that there's a semi-authoritative page that people can reference and, and be able to find evidence uh, in the face of, of disinformation. One of the cooler things there was also that once this material emerged, we were able to get it sent to us by election officials. We could bring that back to the intelligence community. They turned around within 27 hours and we're again providing attribution that we can tell the public, we can tell election officials first that this was a nation state attempting to influence the election. Uh, and then they held a public press conference outing, attributing this activity as Iranian cyber actors. So that was one of the things that didn't exist in 2016. And then we were able to build over the course of four years that mechanism that can intake and identify and attribute and kind of hopefully engender a higher level of confidence in the security of the election because we do have this level of eyes on the security process. That's one of the things that I've always found interesting just as a general member of the public is that you hear, oh, these nation states are doing things. You hear Russia's doing things. You hear Iran is doing things. And these look like it was produced here. I mean, it's a little, it's almost counterintuitive to say another country is creating something that looks very American and then being able to identify it and saying like, this is not actually American. Yeah, I, I, I hear that. And uh, other nations spend a, a lot of money to to train people up to shape American culture. Uh, I guess it's a, a reflection of how important this country is and how important the elections we administer are. There is a skill that in identifying mis and disinformation, and it's not easy. It's a, it is something that the academics are trying to figure out uh, how to improve that, that media literacy over the course of time. I don't think there's ever been the same platform that social media provides for this type of activity. So it's an interesting space. Uh, I also hear from uh, local election officials that 
But when we talk about nation states, uh, why would it be me? Why would they target my little old county? And the, the reality is oftentimes they're just looking for points of opportunity. Uh, and it's not necessarily a strategic move to flip votes in an election. We have never seen that. But what it is, is looking for weakness in a network to be able to pull any information they can and then amplify the fact that they were able to break into election systems or or, or have dis other disinformation actors say, look how susceptible election systems are. Look how vulnerable we are and, and our systems are to, to manipulation. To that end, we've, we've found that sometimes it's hard to talk about, hard to think about nation states. So uh, a, a lot of people understand ransomware a lot easier. Counties all over the country getting targeted by ransomware. Sometimes it's small, little amounts of money. Other times it's getting in the millions of dollars. The same practices you can take to prevent ransomware are going to secure you from most nation state attacks. Now, nation states get very advanced and if they really want to break into your systems, they have the tools to do so. But that due diligence of protecting yourself against ransomware is a due diligence to protect yourself and make yourself less of a target. I have a really embarrassing uh, confession to make, but it eventually leads into a question. So here I go. I can't remember what, when it was exactly, but back in the 2016, 2017 timeframe, I'm pretty sure it was some kind of a panel discussion with the EAC and somebody, it could have even been Matt Masterson mentioned CISA in the discussion. And I was watching it. My first thought was, what does the Wu-Tang Clan have anything to do with elections? Like, <laughs> but, and, and I was like, is that another, you know, Wu-Tang Clan thing? So I went from that. I had never heard of it before, obviously, to, you know, now. But I just want to mention in the context of SZA was in the news a lot in 2020. So one, I wonder if you all have tracked kind of your name recognition within the election community, within the public. And two, do you try to target your audiences differently? Do you try to target, you know, those those sectors we were talking about earlier that deal with each ISAC? And then do you try to target the public separately? How, how do those outreach efforts work? So, yeah, uh, I can confirm that uh, we are not related to anyone in the Wu-Tang Clan, um, as cool as that would be. We prioritized support to uh, election officials and election vendors in large part because uh, this was a, a new sector that we didn't have any inroads into in 2016 and 2017. Uh, this allowed us to kind of rethink some of the partnership model of how we could provide value. Uh, a lot of our sectors were stood up kind of under a different threat landscape that very focused on counterterrorism. If you think of the, the early aughts and, and what the concerns there. And then later it's how, do you how are you resilient to extreme weather like uh, Hurricane Sandy and, uh, and, and damaging hurricanes. Uh, so when the sectors are established, often shapes a little bit of their, their culture. This, this sector was established under cyber threat. So it was very interesting to build it under these circumstances. There is value in CISO. Again, we are the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency. Uh, we sit kind of as a, a focal point of being able to receive information from threat vendors, from the intelligence community, from law enforcement, from physical security events, and from cybersecurity events. And that's hopefully we're able to sit at this, this level that gives us great insight into 
how to help stakeholders in whatever sector be more ready and resilient to the challenges that they face. And yeah, that is different for each sector. The financial sector and the election sector have very different resource issues. And so the cybersecurity services that we provide them, well, I think there's a lot more value in, in providing vulnerability management, cyber hygiene scanning, uh, remote penetration testing to state and locals uh, who could really use these resources than perhaps to the financial sector. The financial sector may be more interested in engaging with us on things like uh, intelligence sharing or some level of, of coordination uh, and facilitation in a different issue. So we do try to, to structure and shape uh, each of our engagements according to the needs uh, of the stakeholder. And, and it's always a learning process. Can't say we always get it right, but we're trying. Is there anything that local election authorities can be doing to better interface with CISA or are there things that you wish that we would do more of or less of? I'd love for every election official to participate in our national election tabletop exercise, tabletop the vote. This will be the third or fourth year uh, that we've done it and we're planning it now. This has been happening every year in the summer uh, with a a goal of identifying areas in your incident response, incident preparedness planning where there can be room for improvement. So a lot of times election officials, local election officials don't know when should I contact CISA? When should I contact FBI or local law enforcement? What does the state need to know? And these are those types of exercises where those conversations can take place and they can understand what type of information you can expect from a CISA, uh, how we can help on incident response, and honestly, what resources the state can bring to bear for local election officials. Um, it's really easy to get to the top counties, the ones that are resourced to, to meet with us, and uh, but uh, meeting the small to mid counties is a lot harder. We're really focusing on those state associations uh, and other ways of trying to kind of marry that these free or no cost voluntary resources with the people who actually need them. We were able to get products out to tailored products to about 5,500 different jurisdictions uh, in advance of 2020. Uh, but that may mean that uh, an election official just gets a poster from uh, from CISA and doesn't necessarily fully understand who we are, why we're helping, uh, what we're doing. So always looking for opportunities to to build and expand that. We think it's uh, our approach right now is really relying on our field force, our, our protective security advisors and cybersecurity advisors uh, who work in states and, and counties across the country, as opposed to me trying to, to convince everyone to do things from here in Washington. If there is ever a need to report an incident to CISA, one of the easiest ways is to email central, C-E-N-T-R-A-L, at cisa.dhs.gov, and we can basically facilitate anything from there. Jeff, I think I just saw today some article about a graphic novel that CISA is doing. Curious how that came about and uh, who your target audience is for that. So uh, thank you for bringing that up. Um, we have released two graphic novels. We consider this part of our resilience series. But yeah, earlier this week, we released Bug Bites, a graphic novel that explores the dangers of disinformation. And we wanted to make sure to, to show disinformation in the context outside of elections, because I think everybody gets focused on, on this risk of mis- and disinformation and thinks it only affects elections. It's like politics, we can weather it. 
this was to show what mis and disinformation and conspiracy theories can how they can apply to technology adoption to health and public safety and so it talks about topics like 5g implementation like vaccine hesitancy and the goal is to try to communicate and improve awareness and education on the risks of mis and disinformation in a way that the government doesn't normally do we've done our first graphic novel was more focused on mis and disinformation around the election that one was released in october it's called real fake happy to uh, for anyone to check that out again uh, the recent one is bug bites and our goal is to reach perhaps a different generation uh, and to explore the risk mitigations on mis and disinformation without necessarily getting into that typical government bureaucracy but here's hoping i'm willing to try it one of the other approaches that we took early on to mis and disinformation and trying to reach different audiences creatively was we did a campaign called war on pineapple where we tried to walk through the tactics that russian and foreign influence operators were using using a divisive issue but hopefully one that was non-political and non-offensive the 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 controversy of whether pineapple belongs on pizza and that was a fun exercise i'm firmly on the you could put anything on pizza and I'll, i will eat it but matt and uh, and then director krebs took a very strong stance opposed has any of that expanded i mean you mentioned a a new generation and obviously i think there's more and more people going into coding and you know all aspects of software development engineering and things like that is any part and i truly don't know this so is any part of what sisa does working with white hat hackers or trying to build those relationships. Oh, absolutely. A, a core of one of our kind of functions and services is to help our stakeholders with vulnerability management, so managing the the vulnerabilities on their systems. Part of that is discovering vulnerabilities and providing tools to identify them. We think that vulnerability management is better done cooperatively, uh and so Well, we are for responsible disclosure of vulnerabilities and and helping stakeholders to walk through a plan of action on how to mitigate them the goal should never be to put an election official out in the media as as having not done their due diligence on securing their systems because i've never found an election official to intentionally be uh, avoiding securing their systems the intent is always there so this is a learning curve where we've tried to kind of play a facilitation role between communities that haven't always gotten along in in the white hat hacking community and uh and election administration we certainly view ourselves as uh as having a hand in both at, at the moment and so any way we can to bridge that gap bridge that divide and make it more of a, a communal environment we're happy to do so we're trying to hire people of all types of talents the individuals with elections expertise uh individuals uh who software developers uh vulnerability managers vulnerability researchers white hat hackers um policy figures um the the role here is really to expand sis's capability internally to reach and impact critical infrastructure across across the country and i do want you to mention since it was news this week but dotgovs are now free Do you, do you want to talk about that? Oh, absolutely. 
So uh, we were thrilled to announce that getting a .gov top-level domain, so the end of your website uh, ending in .gov, is now a, a free process uh, to election officials and other government entities. Uh, we think this has a lot of benefit for uh, election officials because it shouldn't be difficult for the public to know that information coming from you all is coming from a trusted source. So it shouldn't be hard to identify who is a government official. When we kind of sat back and looked at that and with the support of Congress, uh, realized that um, $400 a year was a barrier to entry, we were thrilled to get the support uh, to be able to make a .gov top-level domains free. To that end, if for more information, you go to .gov.gov, that's D-O-T-G-O-V.gov, uh, and it is hopefully a fully comprehensive site on how to request a .gov top-level domain. All right, thanks everybody for tuning in to another episode of High Turnout Wide Margins. Big thanks to Jeff Hale from CISA for being our guest today. And we hope you tune into the next episode of High Turnout Wide Margins.